Okay, good evening everybody. Welcome to the 10th class of Unfinished Tales. We are uh, beginning to get towards the end of the book. Tonight is our last class on Section 3, The Third Age, before we move on to uh, Section 4, Various and Sundry Essays. So, um, I want to uh, uh, first just sort of, uh, well, I don't really exactly have a formal announcement yet, but we are getting closer to uh, electing. We almost have our slate of finalists. Uh, for the next Mythgard Academy class that we'll be running. So uh, we should uh, very soon, possibly even by the next class, uh, have for you the, the list of finalists that our voters will be uh, choosing among. So we are very close to finding out uh, which class is going to be next. I'm joining you tonight, by the way. You'll notice the uh, the different decor. You may also notice at various points, I don't know for sure if you will notice this, but if you do hear the screaming of children in the background, uh, don't be surprised. Um, I am uh, joining you tonight from my in-law's house in Arizona, where my family is on vacation. So uh, that's why I had to move uh, the class time this week. So uh, thank you for joining me at this unusual time. Um, <clears throat> and I'm looking forward to talking about the hunt uh, for the ring with you and also the battles of the Fords of Eisen, though I have to confess up front that I'm going to spend much more time on the hunt for the ring uh, than I am on the battles of the Fords of Eisen. So um, I hope that that won't offend anybody too very grievously. Uh, out there. Um, now, what I want to start with in looking at this text is to ask, as we've been, especially as we've been looking at part three, um, to ask what are these texts doing exactly? We had, you know, when we looked at the Isildur story, at the disaster of the Gladden Fields, we sort of could see the kind of historical revision that uh, that that Tolkien seemed to be doing, the way in which that story uh, really endeavors to change our view of Isildur, our understanding of the Numenorians, Both the Kyrian and Aeoral story and the Isildur story offered to kind of bring us inside those stories. Uh, uh, in, to, not just inside the stories, really inside those worlds. What was it like? Um, what was a Numenorian army in action like? What, what did that look like? What was their culture like? Um, especially their military culture. And we get to see some of that in the Isildur story. Uh, with Kyrian and Aeoral, we had this, you know, you know, we have this sort of series of snapshot images. Um, the ride of a, you know, and in particular, really encapsulated in one single snapshot image, the the dramatic arrival of Aeoral the Young in the Battle of the Fields of the Celebrant. And um, that's, you know, again, Tolkien brings us inside that moment. Yes, he does, uh, you know, help us to, to see and know the characters better, especially uh, Kieran Stewart, I think. Um, but but there's more than just that. There's kind of opening up a window uh, into that world, into that uh, part of history, which we've been, been been invited to imagine in a sort of a more limited, a more sort of distant and mythic sense, and really offers to bring us inside that. In the quest of Erebor, we got the beginning of something different, which is... Uh, looking around, taking stories that we do already know, not just you know those stories that we know very much in brief or have heard you know sort of sketchy legends about, like Isildur and Aeoral, but um, the story like The Hobbit, which we know and should know quite well. Um, but we're give we're sort of shown what's around sighted. In a sense, we're kind of invited to kind of look around the back uh, and see uh, what is the rest of the story that we haven't been told. And these two chapters sort of fit seem to fit into that general um, category as well. We're getting a glimpse of things that we are sort of, in a sense, deprived of um, by the uh, priorities 
of the narrative. I won't say by space, because you know that, that, that Tolkien was simply trying to make the story shorter. I mean, no doubt there were many things that he didn't include in the narrative because he didn't want it to get over long, but it's, it's one of the things that these, and here I will actually begin with a few comments on the battles of the Fords of Bison so I don't leave them utterly behind. Um, one of the things that that really uh, conveys to me is something, I feel that there's sort of a lesson to be learned about Tolkien's storytelling in general from the battles of the Fords of Bison. We've talked a couple times before, I've mentioned on a couple of occasions that when we read the battle sequences in Tolkien, it's relatively clear, it seems relatively clear from the text that we have, that, that you know those stories don't really have much interest in battlefield tactics. We get a little bit when the Rohirrim attack, but even, you know, think about Theoden's speech when he is, uh, you know, sort of dividing his forces as they're charging uh, onto the field. <clears throat> you know, and he has Grimbold go over this way, and Elfhelm go over this way, and he's going to go that way, and then he just says, and everybody else, you know, uh, follow as, you know, as, as, as you can. You know, he just is like, and, you know, basically everybody else just, you know, kind of do your thing and fight wherever it seems appropriate. I mean, it's not really a very intricate battle plan um, that he works out. Now, of course, he doesn't have time to and all that, but, but, but again, the point is that's the kind of thing we see a lot, um, that he, we don't get very intimate description, and when you, you know, compare that with other accounts, and the, the one example I used a couple of weeks ago um, when we were talking about Isildur was George R. R. Martin. You know, you read George R. R. Martin books, and and you 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 know the the, the flow of the, the you know the tactical flow of the battle is something which is quite a central emphasis of the narrative in those moments. However, the battles of the Fords of Eisen, I think, demonstrate pretty clearly that. You can't just say that Tolkien had no interest in battle tactics, right? That it's not that he didn't care about that. He obviously does care about that. In fact, one of the things that, you know, I, I can't read the Battles of the Fords of Eisen without coming to the conclusion, um, obviously this is something that he thought about so much that he, you know, went and wrote this whole thing which accomplishes comparatively little other than to show us the Rohirrim in action on the battlefield and the kind of battle tactics that they showed. Now, of course, the battle tactics of the Rohirrim are of particular interest to him um, because of the connection, which, of course, he denied, between the, the Anglo-Saxons and the Rohirrim. And so, to some extent, the Rohirrim, uh, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the battle machine of Rohan, the, both their political organization and their uh, military order and everything else, um, is uh, are, are are things that were for him sort of invested with a little bit more significance because it connected with his scholarly study of the Anglo-Saxons. But again, not that they're identical. Not trying to claim that they are, and he denies this. But but obviously, you know, it's sort of at stake there. Um, however, um, but again, I think the Battle of the Fords of Eisen show us that it's not just a question of a lack of interest. It's not just that he doesn't care about this. Obviously, he does care about this, which then leads us to the question, why don't we get this in the battle? Um, why don't we get this in the book, that is to say? Why don't we get this in The Lord of the Rings? Why, I mean, like that description of Grimbold falling back and forming a shield wall, and then the, the, the really creative and energetic way in which Grimbold extricates himself from the shield wall, um, you know, through that uh, cavalry charge. I, that's really detailed and really interesting. 
<clears throat> but it doesn't make it in. Um, April's asking if maybe the editor cut it. I doubt it. I, I think that this was this was a conscious choice uh, on his part. Again, it's not. It's not just that it, you know, there's sort of less of it, or, or you know, we only get it here or there, or it's cut out in one place and not in another. Um, it's the whole flow of the narrative doesn't go in that direction. Um, he elevates to this this heroic mode in those moments, which is not in keeping. Even just think of the think of the sentence structure. You can see it on a syntactic level. Um, you know, and I've talked about this, and especially those of you who uh, did the Two Towers and the Return of the King classes with me will remember, especially, well, not really in both, but I think especially in the Return of the King class when I was looking at the Battle of Pelennor Fields, we talked about uh, uh, um, the paratactic structure uh, of his sentences. If you haven't seen that, I, I, you get it. I urge you to go back and, 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 and look at that class because it's fun. And I'm not going to do it all again here. Um, but the way that he, he, he modulates into that heroic mode where he's stringing together these short sentences, usually short um, series of independent clauses um, with ands and buts and usually ands and 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 this, and you know, the, the kind of rhythm that we get, the kind of momentum the rhetorical momentum that it builds, that's the style of the battles that he describes in the books. That style, the style is completely different. It's very paratactic. Uh, or no, not paratactic. It's very hypotactic. Um, uh, in the Battles of the Fords of Eisen, where he's just like describing the intricacies of, and then Grimbold did this before, you know, for this reason and was thinking of this, and he was hoping that Elfhelm would come, but he didn't, and, and all these other things. It has none of that kind of momentum. It's, very, it's fascinating. Um, but it doesn't have any of that same kind of feel, I don't think. Now, there are a couple flashes in the Battles of the Fords of Eisen where we get stuff like that. In particular, the description of Grimbold's charge and his attempt, his tragically failed attempt, um, to, uh, uh, to save Feodred's life, uh, and uh, the moment when he and Elfhelm uh, hear Theodred's last words, we do get some sort of flashes of Tolkien's sort of more accustomed rhetoric uh, in those moments. But um, but anyway, so we, we don't... Uh, I think, again, what we see here is a very different kind of... Um, a, a very different kind of narrative. Tolkien not just sort of indulging himself in, uh, uh, in, in, you know, going over these details that he sort of cuts out, but rather that he um, uh, is, is in those moments, is, is here just doing something quite, is, is engaging in a different project, is telling a very different kind of story. Um, and uh, I, I apologize, by the way, uh, if my... Uh, my connection, I'm, again, I'm at my in-law's house and I'm using their internet connection, which isn't the fastest in the world. Uh, let, me, uh, let me see if I can uh, come back here. Anyway, I shall carry on. And again, tell me if, uh, if audio starts to, starts to stink. Um, okay. Um, so anyway, so that's the, battle, the Battles of the Fords of Eisen. I think that we get, um, you know, what we do sort of learn from it. We do get a you know, significant emphasis on the, not just on the, the structure of the Rohirrim, but the valor of the Rohirrim. Um, and also we get conveyed to us about the story there. Um, we get uh, the, the, the nearness of the disaster. I think one of the strong emphases of the Battle of the Fords of Eisen is, uh, is the, 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 how close 
things came to complete destruction. Um, that I think it's possible to uh, um, it's possible to underestimate that. You know, again, I think it's you know in, in these later um, stories. Um, that is when we think about uh, Gandalf, and we think about uh, we think about Gandalf in the Quest of Erebor. When we think about uh, 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 the Fords of Isin. When we think about uh, the Hunt for the Ring, and the later essays, especially the essay on the Astari. I think there's a lot of things that 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 Tolkien seemed to really want to bring out. Um, things that uh, you know, there's a reason that he went back and wrote wrote out these particular snippets of story. Um, and of course we don't know what was in his mind as he was doing that, but we can see the kind of effect that it has. And I think, again, one of the consequences of this is to show how very close to disaster. It's easy to kind of, uh, you know, sort of enjoy the two towers while it's happening and then sort of lose sight of it as we head out east. Um, and there I think that um, we don't, we're, we are through this, this text not really permitted to forget how how close it was to disaster, and uh, uh, and how almost miraculously um, was the rescue. Um, so anyway, um, let me uh, let me move on to the uh, hunt for the ring. Here, I think the hunt for the ring plays a, a very different kind of uh, role than the um, the battle of the fords of Isen, um, and that is. It's, it seems that its primary purpose is to sort of answer questions. Um, you know, there are several questions which may be in readers' minds, which may be a sort of a stumbling block. Tolkien hated this. He hated inconsistencies, uh, and he hated uh, sort of not unanswered questions in the sense of untold stories. Those are good. He likes those, though often, as in the case of this elder and I are all the young, he likes to go back and tell them anyway. But, um, but that is unanswered questions which might serve, serve as a stumbling block to people in their reading of the story. And so I think that I would point to three questions of varying levels of, uh, of sort of uh, significance in the story of the Lord of the Rings that the hunt for the ring really does answer. Um, one, how do the ringwraiths find the Shire? Um, oh, hey, am I back? Are you seeing me again? Um, uh, I don't know. I can't even tell what's going on anymore. How do the Ringwraiths find the Shire? Um, you may remember that in uh, in Peter Jackson's film, um, uh, when Gandalf tells Frodo that uh, you know that that Gollum said Baggins Shire, that you know he's like, but that will lead them here, uh, and you know, and it turns out. Mm, Actually, no, not not so much, really. Um, it's a little harder than that. Um, it's a little more complicated um, than that makes it seem. Um, it's not a question of uh, just them, I, you know, basically uh, him going to the map of Middle Earth that I have hanging uh, in, in in my room, and I suspect many of you do too. You know, Sauron pouring over the map of Middle Earth and being like, "Oh yeah, the Shire over there. Of course, I'll go over there." Um, that's not the case. The, the, those kinds of maps don't exist. Again, it's one of the things you know. We've talked, uh, you know, especially in, uh, in 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 Mythgard class. I remember when I was doing my modern fantasy class, um, 
and uh, Ed Powell, you were bringing up the fact that you're sort of dividing fantasy into two different kinds of fantasy. There's map fantasy and non-map fantasy. Uh, you know, the sort of the fantasy literature that you really need a map in the front of the book in order to really get. Uh, and of course, Ed was arguing for. Uh, uh, for uh, uh, you know the, the superiority of the map uh, uh, fantasy version, um, but remember that there's something deceptive about it. Just as there is something deceptive about Appendix B, the Tale of Years, that is for us to have everything all mapped out neatly. It's easy for us to forget that all of those things are not known by people in general and it's easy to forget how within the context of the story and the world and the sort of the state of, uh, of communication uh, that they live in and their technology in that world you know, much is unknown, much is forgotten historically. This especially comes up when people ask the question like how, how is it that Gandalf didn't know immediately that this was the One Ring? I mean, what on, el what on earth else could it be? Well, it's a little more complicated than that. There's much, there's, you know, in retrospect, it's pretty obvious. Uh, and it's pretty obvious from our point of view who have the benefit of all these things that are put together in hindsight. But they didn't have those things. Um, and an enormous span of time has passed uh, from uh, from one thing to the other. I mean, as I've said before, the war, the battle of the last alliance, you know, the war of the last alliance. Uh, from the point of view of Frodo Baggins sitting in Bag End, the War of the Last Alliance is about as far back um, uh, as you know Ramses the Great of Egypt is to us. I mean, ancient, ancient history. We're talking like ancient Mesopotamia. Yeah, as Tom says, from the fall of Troy to now, that's a good comparison. Um, so. So yeah, it's a huge space of time. And think of how much we have lost. Think of how much we don't know about what happened there. Even you know, with all of our you know, historical and anthropological and archaeological research, think of all that we don't know um, about what really happened during those times. And, um, and, uh, and you know, so again, this question of like, well, everybody knows that Isildur took the ring, and, um, and you know, so they should figure out where it ended up. I mean, no, it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. And again, the map is not quite so obvious as, uh, as, as, it, as it would seem to us who have it there in the front of the book. So in some ways the map can be actually misleading in that way. Um, so again, how do the ring rates find the Shire? It's not as easy as all that. The Shire isn't on most people's maps. People have never heard of it, besides which it has a really generic name. Uh, you know, I mean, no one's going to have heard of the Shire because it's something that only the people who live there call it. And that may name would mean nothing to people further than Bree, really. Um, even in Rivendell, they don't call it the Shire. I mean, they do after Bilbo moves there, and he sort of teaches them to call it that. But I mean, it's the only people who've heard of it talk about the faraway land of the halflings, um, which maybe they've heard about, but very few people have heard of. Um, yes, Roy says the Gondorians don't know where the Shire is, and they have even more reason to. They they, they have they would have more excuse to know about it than Sauron does because their kingdom was uh, you know, extended up there. We'll come back to that in a little bit. So anyway, okay, how do the Ringwraiths find the Shire? Question number one. Uh, question number two, what role does Saruman play in this story? And this has, you know, on the one hand, a very simple instigation in that geographically, the Ringwraiths go through the Gap of Rohan. We know this. They go through the Gap of Rohan and then go north uh, to find the Shire eventually. They would have had to go right by Isengard, and we know that Saruman is already betraying people, uh, has betrayed people. What exactly is the state of his 
allegiance? Does he have allegiance with Sauron at this point? Exactly how does that work? Um, so that's another thing that we get is some insight into Saruman and what's going on with him. And as you can see, um, Saruman gets a lot of attention you know, during the course of this, uh, during the course of this piece, uh, or rather these pieces that Christopher Tolkien is putting together. And it's pretty clear that sort of the state of Saruman's mind um, and sort of the status of his planning and what and his backstory and what goes on with Saruman is one of the things that uh, that both uh, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and Christopher Tolkien are very interested here, uh, very interested in when they're writing this uh, and putting this stuff together. The third question, um, and this might seem like a sort of a small, silly question, but I don't think it is. What's up with the squint-eyed southerner in Bree? That's another major question <laughs> that this chapter answers. Um, and as I know that might seem uh, like a, a very incidental question compared to some others, um, but I don't think so. Again, what this does is it is uh, it, we can see here these this story ironing out this chapter ironing out questions or potential problems or confusions that reader might ha readers might have. Even in retrospect, it's kind of hard to sort out what was actually going on at Bree, right? We, we saw Bill Fernie looking ominous. Um, we know that Strider suspected him, that he was in somebody's pay. We know the Black Riders came in and scared Harry uh, uh, at the gate. Um, we know that they, you know, and they probably daunted him uh, and that he might be working for them now. Um, we have the sort of the, the prospect of Bill Fernie in the pay of the Black Riders, but and there's the squint-eyed Southerner who seems to be a spy, but later on he seems to be associated with Saruman in Isengard. Remember, Mary, uh, you know when um, uh, Sam refers to the uh, the 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 squint-eyed Southerner at Bree in, in connection with the with the 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 half orcs and goblin men that we see uh, later on that. Um, you know, uh, uh, Pippin is reminded, or is it Mary? One of them, I forget. Or, you know, is, is of the ones that they saw in Isengard. So again, we have um, um, we have a pretty clear indication that this squint-eyed southerner was working for Saruman. So now, again, in retrospect, what was going on there? It's it's sort of a subset of the Saruman question, right? Who is working for whom there? You, know, you can read The Lord of the Rings as often as you like, and it doesn't become perfectly obvious just from the published text what exactly was happening there. Who was the Southerner working for? Saruman? Um, was Bill Fernie working with the Black Riders, or was he selling them out to Saruman exactly? Because you know, that's possible. It could be that Bill Fernie wasn't actually going to sell to the Black Riders that his information, but maybe he was. I don't know. So, again, this 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 the whole question of what was going on at Bree and in the rest of their journey there. Um, these are things, you know, where did the Kerbine from, uh, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the Black Crows come from and why were they there? Um, these are questions, again, that Tolkien takes up uh, in the Hunt for the Ring material uh, and shows us uh, sort of how these things work. It seems very interested in answering these questions. One side note here before we get down to, to specifics in the text. Um, there, uh, the stuff, especially in The Hunt for the Ring, this is not stuff that Tolkien needs to make up uh, from whole cloth. He's not saying, like, okay, wait, all right, uh, I guess I left that a little bit confusing. Let me go back and think about that and work that out. He's already worked this stuff out. I mean, if you read the uh, the history of Middle-earth sequence uh, from the, uh, the history of the Lord of the Rings sequence from the history of Middle-earth, um, that is volumes 6, 7, and 8. Is that right? Am I getting those right? Or is it seven, eight, and nine? 
darn it, I'm forgetting. Uh, I don't have my bookshelf right next to me to look at. Um, but anyway, he, you know, he he he. Uh, if you look at the manuscript material for the Lord of the Rings that Christopher Tolkien gives us, you can see he has like whole charts worked out of the movements of the Black Riders, and of course it changes over time as he's working out the story. Um, but we know that this this sort of the general material was was stuff that was already there, and he's just kind of tweaking it. It is six through nine. Thanks, Alyssa. Um, uh, so anyway, you know, we 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 do see him um, working uh, working with that material. So again, it's not that he you know, never thought of this stuff and is like, oh shoot, I left some holes, I better go back and fill them. It's again, like the Battles of the Fords of Eisen, there's stuff that he did think about, um, that he was interested in, that he just didn't put in the story, because he made essentially artistic choices to say, you know what, um, I'm not going to give the whole story of what went on with the Ringwraiths, but he knew it. Um, he worked it out. And so we're getting to see some of these things that lay, uh, that lay behind in order to try to answer some of these questions. So I think that's kind of fun. Now I want to go on actually to look at some passages of the text today, but uh, uh, let me let me just look back at some of the um, comments that you guys have made uh, and questions, uh, just so I don't skip over them completely here. Um, yes, um, Roy, I really like uh, the way that you uh, describe that. Thinking about the way that some of these stories are functioning, especially in uh, part three of Unfinished Tales. Um, allowing us to invest imaginatively in different landscapes in Middle-earth, like filling in unknown parts of, of the map. I think that's true literally and also figuratively as well, right? I mean, you could say that the early Third Age, you know, like you know, the time right before the death of Isildur, is, you know, a, a part of the sort of chronological map that hasn't been filled in and that we get. Um, and that, I think, is, is really interesting and works really, and works really well. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, let's see. Uh, yeah. Um, good. Um, okay. <laughs> Sorry, just getting through the portion, the portion of the uh, uh, <laughs> of the comments where you guys were all telling me to take off the ring. There, take it off, fool, says Neil. Um, <laughs> yeah, good. Um, good. Let's see. Noam says, "I think that Tolkien's narrative really tries to focus our attention on the heroes and their actions, and anything else that's added to the battle description will draw our attention from it." Yes. Now, of course, Noam. One of the consequences, uh, again, it's sort of in a different sense, right? Because I think one of the consequences of the description, the in the detailed description of the flow of the battles uh, uh, of the Fords of Isen. Um, is greater admiration. I mean, I always liked Grimbold, but I like Grimbold way better after reading this chapter. I mean, that guy was the man. I, lo I love Grimbold. I'm always so sad when he dies at the Battle of Pelennor Field. But, um, um, but so, you know, t to some extent, you know, we, we get Grimbold emerging as a hero who was really primarily just a name um, in the Lord of the Rings text. Um, so to some extent, we do get more attention on the heroes and their actions um, through this, so it's kind of a, you know, you could just say it's a different approach to achieving this end, but I do think that, Noam, if we had this kind of thing plopped into the middle of the Lord of the Rings, it, it just wouldn't fit, and I think that, you know, my suspicion is just that that was, that was Tolkien's judgment, that he knew that it wouldn't fit. This is not the way that this story is being told in the Lord of the Rings, um, and so he's going to do the 
he's gonna he's gonna do the heroic battle sequences uh, just in a very different way. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, okay, yeah, and April says, uh, despite all this, going back and answering questions and clearing up confusions, he still doesn't tell us what happened to the Entwives. He said he didn't know. Yeah, I mean, in his letters, he, he you know, because he got that question a lot from people by letter, uh, and he says, I, 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 I don't know what happened to him. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there are some things that he prefers, and he cites the Entwives as an example, that should just should be left mysterious. If all questions are answered, uh, then it reduces the impact of the story. Um, if we knew definitively the true story. I mean, if we got, say, imagine we had a chapter of Unfinished Tales, which was just like the story of the Antwives, and it told the whole thing from, you know, from, uh, uh, you know, from, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, from the point of view of the Antwives and what really happened to them and everything else. <laughs> I, I think that'd be awful. Um, the consequence is, I cannot help but feel that the story of the Ents in The Lord of the Rings would really lose a lot of its power. I just think it would. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, I think that that's a really important, you know, it's, it's, it's a really important distinction that he makes. Um, Brent asks, why wasn't this uh, in, in the published version if it was already worked out, like the Hunt for the Ring stuff? Um, just for room's sake or publisher's preference, again, I suspect Tolkien's own preference, first of all. Um, I mean, again, even when he was working out the charts and stuff, he didn't include it in the main narrative, um, not even in draft form, before the, the editor or the publisher had any say about it or any input into it. Um, so I, I think it's primarily, first and foremost, his choice. Um, again, his choice of like what kind of, you know, where the focus of the, of the story should be and what kind of story he was writing. Um, but as for what, you know, but again, remember the struggle he had narrowing down what was going to be in the appendices, right? Um, <clears throat> he, you know, there's, there's, there's. Um, I mean, it, the evidence seems to me to suggest that Tolkien was like at war with himself artistically, in some sense, that he had a really good, uh, a really good ear for what made a for what made a good story, um, and he kept to that. But he also had the impulse to give all this extra lore. He really wanted to put, you know, he really wanted not only to work out how the ring rates were going, but like the history of the calendar system, of course, and all that stuff, not to mention the languages. So, uh, you know, he also had all that stuff that he wanted to put in. So this is why we got a really great story, which he would have loved to put massive, massive appendices to at the end. And that's where the publisher was like, no, you know, forget it. We've got to cut these down. Um, so... You know, there, there, there are things, I think, especially in the History of Middle-earth series, that Christopher Tolkien publishes, which I think that, you know, Tolkien certainly never, I mean, when we know he did not consider them in, in publishable form, I mean, they're still in scraps and things. And there, there are things that I, you know, it's hard not to think, not to suspect that Tolkien himself would have been really embarrassed had he lived to see some of these things published. Um, because they weren't meant for publication, and Christopher Tolkien made the decision to go ahead and do that, and in the end, I think, I mean, I'm certainly grateful that he did. Um, but, uh, uh, but this stuff, 
The Stuff in Unfinished Tales, which remember is the first of these. It, it predates the History of Middle-earth series. It's after the Silmarillion, before the History of Middle-earth. This is the kind of stuff that I think Tolkien would quite have liked uh, to be published. It's like, you know, one way that you could think about the volume of Unfinished Tales, it's almost like the big fat appendix that Tolkien wasn't permitted to publish. It's not exactly what it is, but it's kind of close, actually. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Sarah asks, oh, good question. Should we assume that Bilbo was the one who put <clears throat> the map of Middle-earth together? Um, uh, yeah, that seems fair. I mean, or Frodo. Um, I mean, I, maybe Sam, but probably not. Um, we, just be given how complete the work was when it was given to Sam, as far as we were told. Um, because, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the frame is that this is the stuff that is being handed down to us. And now you could say, well, maybe it comes from Gondor, um, <clears throat> you know, and was part of, um, uh, you know, the, the Gondorian version, uh, you know, of the, the, the Gondorian copy of the Red Book um, uh, made by Findigil, King's writer. Maybe. We don't really, I don't think, unless I, I might be just, um, I, I might just be blanking on this, but... Uh, but I think that it's, I, I can't recall a specific reference to the provenance within the fictional frame of the map. If anyone remembers this that I'm blanking on, please uh, uh, go ahead and, uh, and, and, and tell me. Um, yeah, good. Okay, let's see. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Kevin says the Gondorians probably wouldn't have as much uh, detail on the Shire. Uh, no, no, they wouldn't. Of course, the the sort of blown up Shire map would would certainly be a Hobbit map, clearly. Um, but uh, uh, but you know, the, of course, so you you could say perhaps that they're a combination. And Sarah, I agree. Bilbo did love maps, right? He's the one that we were told really, really loved them. So that's why, Sarah, if I had to, and I, my money would be on Bilbo if I really had to. I really had to place a bet. All right, uh, shall we? Now that we're like forty minutes into class, shall we? <laughs> shall we look at the text? I'd like to. Let's. I, I wanted to. There were a couple things I wanted. To, I want to focus on the Saruman and so the Saruman and Gandalf stuff because I feel like that's that's really the heart of this text, and especially the the, the wonderful extra stuff, you know, the bonus material that uh, Christopher Tolkien tosses us at the end of the Hunt for the Ring, which is so cool. Um, but two things I want to touch on first are uh, Gollum and the nature of the ring wraiths. Um, first, the, the, the two different versions that we get of the conflict between Gollum and Sauron, which I think are really cool. Of course, there's the, the, the one idea, um, <clears throat> the one that's in the B text or the C text. Um, one, of, uh, one of Christopher Tolkien's editorial practices, which I find very understandable but a little bit frustrating, is his the choice that he persistently makes not to duplicate texts. So if you've got two different versions of a text which are pretty similar to each other, like with the Quest of Erebor stuff that he did, right? Um, 
instead of just giving us both versions of it in full, which he could do, instead he chooses one of them, gives it to us in full, and then just sort of tosses us some scraps from the other one, thereby preventing a really careful comparison of the two, which I find really frustrating. Um, so it's my least favorite part of, uh, my least favorite aspect of Christopher Tolkien's editorial procedure, both in Unfinished Tales and in the History of Middle-Earth series. Um, so here, you know, if he's got his A, B, C, and D text, I'd rather just have them, actually. If you could just give me all four of those texts, that would be handy. Um, but anyway, so I, um, um, I would like to talk about the, so we, 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 we get the two Gollum stories, right? The one which is really quite simple, which has Sauron simply making a costly assumption about halflings, that he assumes that Bilbo, whom Gollum met in the Misty Mountains, must have come from that area in the Gladden Fields, you know, where Gollum was from, essentially, that Bilbo, seeming, who seemed to be a person of the same kind of thing as Gollum was, probably came from the same place, and so he, he doesn't seem at all to consider for a long time um, that, uh, that Bilbo came from anywhere else. Um, so once he finds this thing about Baggins in the Shire, he says, I'm going to go, I'm going to send the Ringwraiths north, and they're going to hunt around, uh, you know, the Anduin Vale until they find th this Shire place. Um, but anyway, so that's, that's, you know, that's sort of the one version where, again, it's, it's primarily just an assumption um, and a, a costly assumption uh, that Sauron is making. Um, but uh, I like this one even better. Um, okay, here, sorry. Gollum was captured in Mordor. This is what he calls the A-text. Gollum was captured in Mordor in the year 3017 and taken to Barad-dûr and there questioned and tormented. When he had learned what he could from him, Sauron released him and sent him forth again. He did not trust Gollum, for he divined something indomitable in him, which could not be overcome, even by the shadow of fear, ex except by destroying him. But Sauron perceived the depth of Gollum's malice towards those who had robbed him, and guessing that he would go in search of them to avenge himself, Sauron hoped that his spies would thus be led to the ring. Gollum, however, was before long captured by Aragorn, and taken to northern Mirkwood, and though he was followed, he could not be rescued before he was in safekeeping. Now Sauron had never paid heed to the halflings, even if he had heard of them, and he did not yet know where their land lay. From Gollum, even under pain, he could not get any clear account, both because Gollum indeed had no certain knowledge himself, and because what he knew he falsified. Ultimately, indomitable he was, except by death, as Sauron did not fully comprehend, being himself consumed by lust for the ring. Then he became filled with a hatred of Sauron, even greater than his terror, seeing in him truly his greatest enemy and rival. Thus it was that he dared to pretend that he believed that the land of the halflings was near to the places where he had once dwelt beside the banks of the Gladden. Um... I think this version is way cooler. Um, the idea of the indomitable will of Gollum, um, both because he's a halfling, and halflings tend to be pretty indomitable anyway, um, but also because he's Gollum. Um, that this is, in, this is one instance, and not the only instance, 
of the power of Sauron's ring being turned against him. Of course, the biggest example of this is the way in which the rings destruct the ring, you know, in this sort of complex way, commit suicide, right? You know, the, uh, the Gollum takes the ring as witness of his oath, and Frodo says, it will bind you to it, and I will, you know, if I, wearing the ring, command you to jump into the fire, then you will, and, uh, you know, I mean, all, you know, the, 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 the ring will twist your oath against you, all of that stuff, uh, it is sort of suggesting that the ring itself is one of the things that brings Gollum to its, his destru destruction, and therefore its own as well. Um, but anyway, you know, here we see, you know, the syntax is really complicated in that one crucial sentence there. Ultimately indomitable he, Gollum, was, except by death, as Sauron did not fully comprehend being himself consumed by lust for the ring. Who? Sauron? Wait, who's himself here? Um, being himself consumed by lust for the ring. So, Sauron did not fully comprehend it because he, Sauron, was consumed by lust for the ring? Or is it talking about golems being consumed with lust for the ring? Um, <clears throat> being consumed, uh, except by death, as Sauron did not fully comprehend because since Gollum was consumed by lust for the ring. Um, and I, 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 although that doesn't seem to make any sense, the himself would seem to refer to Sauron, which is the immediate antecedent of himself. But I don't think so, because the he in the next sentence, for which Sauron is also the nearest antecedent, is clearly Gollum. Then he became filled with the hatred of Sauron, even greater than his terror. So we have all of these pronouns referring back to Gollum two sentences before, and I suspect that himself is referring to Gollum there too. Uh, and again, I think that this is... Um, uh, a syntactically debatable sentence. I might be wrong about this, and we could potentially, um, we could potentially do, do you know, sort of think about readings either way. But, um, but I think it makes a little bit more sense if it's Gollum consumed by lust for the ring. We know that that is a true statement of Gollum, and again, it helps us to understand about how he is ultimately indomitable except by death, since. Gollum is completely consumed by lust for the ring. He, that is why he's indomitable, not just because he's a halfling, but because his death means nothing to pain, torment. What torment compares to being deprived of the ring? Right? So, I mean, yeah, you can torture him. You can, you know, you can, you can do whatever he, horrible things Sauron does to his hands, for instance, which Gollum remembers. Remember his crying out, my, oh, my poor hands, when he's remembering back at the beginning of the Two Towers to his time in Mordor. I don't know what he does to torture him, but um, he. Uh, um, but again, clearly these these tortures do not rate uh, in Gollum's mind against the deprivation of the ring, and he is so determined to retain the, to regain the ring if he can. And seeing, as he says in that next sentence, um, seeing Sauron as his greatest enemy and rival, um, that enables him to sort of to stiffen his will and to resist. Sauron, and even apparently successfully to lie to him. Um, yeah, Charlie, I agree. Charlie says, if himself is not Sauron, it's grammatically unnecessary. Yeah, it absolutely is. I, I, I agree. I mean, I just, I don't know what to do with that statement. Um, uh, that's, but again, given the poor 
pronoun antecedent relationships that are surrounding it in the sentence, I'm willing to believe <clears throat> that this is a kind of a fast and loose thing. Again, remember, this was not a text edited by Tolkien for publication. A lot of this was, you know, one draft of a series of things that he was writing out, <clears throat> and sometimes, you know, there slips like this happen. Um, there's clearly a slip one way or another, I think. <clears throat> but anyhow. Um, good. Good, yeah, as Sharon points out, no torment can be greater than enslavement by the ring, and he's already had that inflicted on him. So in a sense, Sauron has, unbeknownst to himself, already tortured Gollum, um, and Gollum, um, there's no more that uh, Sauron can do to him. Um, and in fact, the very tortures that Sauron's ring have imposed upon Gollum um, strengthen him against this the further uh, intimidation, the further daunting of Sauron, um, of Gollum by Sauron. See, now I'm like screwing up references my own self here. Um, <clears throat> so I, I think that this is really interesting. And one of the things that I think that this does um, is it, it, it sort of helps to well, in a complicated kind of way, sort of recuperate Gollum. I think, you know, thinking about the uh, sort of the, the big picture of the, you know, sort of putting together the references we get to Gollum in this chapter here, I would suggest two different effects that they have upon us as readers of The Lord of the Rings. One is to sort of take Gollum a little bit more seriously. Um, that is to say, to give him a little bit, I mean, anybody who can do this, Anybody who can lie to Sauron's face successfully and deceive him, I mean, that's a short list. We're told about, you know, sort of the, 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 the pressure, the power of the will of Sauron when it's directed against you. Um, remember what Gandalf says to Pippin, you know, and how he assumes that, you know, Pippin, you know, th th there's no way that Pippin could stand up to Sauron and lie to him or conceal things from him. Um, had he chosen to interrogate him then, this is what Gandalf says very clearly to Pippin. Um, Gollum does it. Gollum succeeds, right? He has the resources. Um, uh, and he manages to do So again, you know, we, he's not quite Gollum the Great, you know, I, of course, quoted that from his uh, uh, awesome ring-induced dialogue, Gollum's. But um, um, but anyway, he's he's still he's still. It, it sort of shows us the kind of stature that Gollum has, um, and helps us to not take him too lightly, um, in case we were at risk of doing that. The other thing that I think um, we get is. Increased pity for Gollum? Gollum is in a pretty bad place, right? I mean, first of all, this guy was, um, you know, tormented by the ring for centuries. So he finds this ring, and, you know, like he committed murder and did bad things. You know, we're not trying to excuse Gollum here or say that he's a swell guy, but, um, but you know, he, he is uh, twisted and made wretched and 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 uh, you know and depraved by this ring, um, and then when he loses it uh, and is now desperate, he now basically just becomes persecuted from all sides. The way in which we have 
you know, this, you know, that 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 the hunt for Gollum by everybody, by Mordor, by the good guys, and like, you know, him. There's, you know, poor Gollum running from both orcs and elves simultaneously, right? The way in which he is just at the focal point um, of everybody's attention becomes a really um, uh, becomes a really big deal. Um, so, anyhow, there's there's um, it's it's very it's very it's very interesting. Again, I think putting us in a position to 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 feel more pity for him, to sort of see exactly how wretched his life has been, culminating with his skulking in Moria, with his hiding from the his, in terror from the Ringwraiths, whom he knows apparently are after him, uh, and trying to recapture him, and he then is uh, hiding up in Moria, um, and. Um, you know that, and that's, and I, I, I am very interested in the description of that. It seems clear that pursued by both elves and orcs, Gollum crossed the Anduin, probably by swimming, and so eluded the hunt of Sauron. But being still hunted by elves and not yet daring to pass near Lorien, only the lure of the ring itself made him dare to do this afterwards. He hid himself in Moria. That was probably in the autumn of the year, after which all trace of him was lost. What then happened to Gollum cannot, of course, be known for certain. He was peculiarly fitted to survive in such straits, though at cost of great misery. But he was in great peril of discovery by the servants of Sauron that lurked in Moria, especially since such bare necessity of food as he must, as he must have, he could only get by thieving dangerously. Um, notice, by the way, the kind of horrible parallel here of Bilbo in the halls of the Elven King. Um, I, you know, I, I, I find that kind of striking. No doubt he had intended to, except he doesn't have a ring, of course. No doubt he had intended to use Moria simply as a secret passage westward, his purpose being to find the Shire himself as quickly as he could. But he became lost, and it was a very long time before he found his way out. It thus seems probable that he had not long made his way towards the West Gate when the Nine Walkers arrived. He knew nothing, of course, about the action of the doors, to him they would seem huge and immovable, and though they had no lock or bar and opened outwards to a thrust, he did not discover that. In any case, he was now far away from any source of food, for the orcs were mostly in the east end of Moria, and he was become weak and desperate, so that even if he had known all about the doors, he still could not have thrust them open. It was thus a singular piece of good fortune for Gollum that the Nine Walkers arrived when they did. Now, that was always apparent, right? That this was a singular act of good fortune. I mean, the coincidence, um, the coincidence of Gollum finding them in Moria, that he just happens to be in Moria, and Moria is a big and complicated place, right? But he happens to pick up their trail um, while they're there was always of remarkable coincidence, right? And now, instead of backing off from that, you know, instead of trying to make that seem less serendipitous than it was, he emphasizes the serendipity and indeed points out, yeah, no, 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 it's even, it's even more remarkable than that. Not only is it true that uh, Gollum happened to find them by chance, if chance you call it, in Moria, but that if they had not come when they had, he might have died of starvation. Um, that the finding of the walkers and following them out is all that saved his life. Um, so again, you know, the way that we can see fortune taking a hand here, um, you know, chance taking a hand, I think really does um, 
uh, really does suggest that we see again Tolkien not wanting to, to 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 change that, but rather to emphasize it and even emphasize it in new ways. We we have already seen you know you can see already in the Lord of the Rings um, that Gollum is in many ways an unwilling but still an instrument um, uh, of fate. You know of uh, you know it is through the intervention of Gollum as Frodo perceives immediately after the cracks of doom. You know. If, if not for Gollum, I couldn't have destroyed the ring. Um, Gollum has a role to play, as Gandalf foreboded long before. Um, you know, he, he clearly has a purpose there in that story. And um, that is being emphasized and being emphasized in new ways here. Um, okay. Um, but anyway, I only wanted to touch on Gollum because he's not the main character here. Um, but I do want to talk about the ring rapes a little bit. Um, People often, you know, when I do, when I do Q and A's and stuff, you know, Tolkien Q and A's, people always want to talk about the ring rates. People are fascinated about the ring rates and their nature and what we see. Well, we learned some interesting stuff about them uh, in this chapter, and I think that that's kind of interesting. Here's, uh, you know, the pluses and minuses of ring rates. They were by far the most powerful of his servants and the most suitable for such a mission, since they were entirely enslaved to their nine rings, which he now himself held. They were quite incapable of acting against his will, and if one of them, even the Witch King, their captain, had seized the One Ring, he would have brought it back to his master. This is an important point, right? Um, the ring rates are perfect for this mission, not just because they're the most powerful, but because they are the only servants of Sauron whom he can trust completely to seize the ring. Um, anybody else, even remember Grishnok for crying out loud, anybody else, that he sends after the ring, anybody else who gets it is going to want to keep it for himself. Um, so Sauron really has two options, to go himself or to send the ring rates. So that's an interesting thing that he emphasizes here. And notice even the Witch King, their captain, the one whom you think would be most likely the, the biggest threat to sort of set up on his own and try to overthrow his master and become the master himself, um, that he is himself still so entirely enslaved uh, to his ring, to his one of the nine, um, that he can't, physically can't do that. But they had disadvantages until open war began, for which Sauron was not yet ready. All except the Witch King were apt to stray when alone by daylight, and all, save the, again, save the Witch King, feared water, and were unwilling except in dire need to enter it or to cross streams unless dry-shod by a bridge. Moreover, their chief weapon was terror. This was actually greater when they were unclad and invisible, and it was greater also when they were gathered together. So any mission on which they were sent could hardly be conducted with secrecy, while the passage of Anduin and other rivers presented an obstacle. For such reasons, Sauron long hesitated, since he did not desire that his chief enemies should become aware of his servant's errand. Um, so the fact that, you know, it's one thing that's, that, that is sort of ironic and again, easy to overlook in the context of the Fellowship of the Ring, um, that in sending out the ring rates, he is abandoning secrecy. Um, remember Gandalf's reaction when he hears that the nine are abroad, right? Um, he, 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 this is a really big deal, right? When the nine are abroad and you can't hide them. Right, um, I mean, they uh, they 
in, they, you know, sort of impact the whole region that they're going through, apparently. But the two things that I think are most interesting here that we don't again, you know, we don't get so clearly as this uh, in the actual narrative of the Lord of the Rings is the effect of daylight. They were apt to stray when alone by daylight. It's a fascinating idea um, that it's not just that they're weaker, um, it's not just that they prefer the darkness, but that they don't, like lose focus. Like I just the idea of a ring race is kind of wandering around and like waking up at sundown and being like, where, where the heck am I? I mean, it's kind of a strange idea. Um, but the idea, but what seems to me to be implied is that that will that they have um, is diminished. Um, that they become like wandering spirits uh, during the day without the focus and the will uh, to carry on the commands that they have been ordered to carry out. And that's pretty interesting, I think. The other, of course, is this difficult and kind of debatable concept of their aversion to water. Um, now, more on that. My father nowhere explained the Ringwraith's fear of water. In the account just cited, it is made a chief motive in Sauron's assault on Osgiliath, and it reappears in detailed notes on the movements of the Black Riders in the Shire, thus of the rider, who was in fact Kamul of, of Dol Guldur, see note one, seen on the far side of Bokaberry Ferry just after the hobbits had crossed, it is said that he was well aware that the ring had crossed the river, but the river was a barrier to his sense of its movement, and that the Nazgul would not touch the elvish waters of Baranduin. But it is, that, that is the brand new one, of course. But it is not made clear how they crossed other rivers that lay in their path, such as the Grey Flood, where there was only a dangerous ford formed by the ruins of the bridge. My father did indeed note that the idea was difficult to sustain. Um, yes. Now, he hasn't any, he might any, and may not anywhere explain the Ringwraith's fear of water, but it doesn't seem all that strange. That is to say, the sort of traditional fairy tale um, um, significance of water and fords and water crossings. Um, and, you know, there are many traditions in which running water is said to be, um, uh, you know, that the dead can't cross over living water or, or running water and things like that. that those, are, those are fairly common ideas in folklore. So it's not like it's completely out of nowhere that he would suggest this about the ring rates. And it certainly does um, help to make the flight of the hobbits make a little bit more sense, right? Um, that is, why would they go around by the bridge? I mean, okay, you know, um, Mary says that horses can't cross the Brandywine, but I mean, seriously, he's a wraith, right? Um, does he swim? Would he have to swim? I mean, so he leaves his horse and takes off across the river. I, couldn't he cross the river? Uh, you know, I mean, again, you'd think. Um, one question, and again, thinking in terms of questions or problems that can be an obstacle in readers' minds, one of the things that we see in, you know, one of the, one of the common questions, one of the common problems that people have is, why do the ring raids have such a hard time tracking down Frodo? Um, it would seem like they really, there's really no reason why they shouldn't be able to catch them in the Shire. Well, the water thing is one issue. 
um, uh, you know, he might be Kamal of Dol Guldur, but he can't cross the river. Uh, on he can't just like decorporealize or whatever, take off his cloak uh, and uh, you know <laughs> strip down and float across the river. Not going to happen because it's running water. He's got to cross dry shot on the bridge. Um, you know, down a long ways away. So, um, uh, so that I think is is it, it sort of makes sense. It seems to work. But um, um, but anyway, these these the, you know Roy wants to is sort of thinking about the protection of Olmo. We don't see him going there, right? And again, we have lots of traditional analogs to this. But um, um, but yeah, I mean, it is especially in the unfinished tales context, right? It's a little bit hard not to be remembering Olmo uh, and his power going through the waters of Middle Earth. Um, yeah, yeah. Diego asks, could that be a reason why he gave them winged steeds? It is sort of an obvious upgrade, right? Um, let's just get them off the ground entirely, then we won't have to worry about the river thing. Good. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Charlie is recalling correctly that Boromir lost his horse at the fording of the Grey Flood, uh, and he and uh, and he swam across the Anduin. Yeah. Um, so, so again, the question is, well, then how did the Ringwraiths cross uh, the Grey Flood? Now, notice it doesn't say it's impossible for them to do this, um, but uh, anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yes, Charlie, and the ring isn't really, uh, you know, he's, he's using the metaphor, it's not like it's ra radioactive and the, the Nazgul have a, have a Geiger counter, you know. Yeah, um, now remember, I, I was really fascinated by that comment that he made in the, in the note one alluded to um, earlier there, that um, Hamel was the one who was sent in, he's the one who talked to, to the gaffer, he's the one who talked to Farmer Maggot, um, he's the one who's left behind on the landing stage uh, of the of the ferry because he was one of the nine who, apart from the Witch King, who had the greatest sense, uh, who, who could locate the ring, most who could sense the ring most clearly. But he is also one of the ones who is most limited by daylight. Um, and I thought that, that just th those were, to me, sort of fascinating details. Um, but um, anyway, so you know, again, we don't we we don't get definitive answers to these things here. I think we can see sort of Tolkien himself playing with different ideas um, and not really, I think, firmly deciding on this. But one of the thing, one of the overall uh, kinds of conclusions, I think, that we can draw from this is Tolkien sort of trying to envision. You know, the Ringwraiths are not just like superheroes of evil. You know, they are not. They are Sauron's most powerful servants, but they're not simply, you know, uh, you know, inconquerable evil things. They, their power is constrained, um, and so him sort of trying to imagine in more detail than we get in uh, um, in the Fellowship of the Ring, especially on the uh, uh, the, the limitations of the Ringwraiths. Um, you know, so, but even though he hasn't fully completed working this out. Um, now, quickly, before we get to Saruman, on to the, uh, the, the difficult case of the squint-eyed southerner. This Dunlunding was overtaken by several of the Black Riders as they approached the Tharvad crossing. In an extremity of terror, he was hailed to the Witch King and questioned. He saved his life by betraying Saruman. 
the witch king thus learned that Saruman knew well all along where the Shire was, and knew much about it, which he could and should have told to Sauron's servants if he had been a true ally. The witch king also obtained much information, including some, uh, uh, some about the only name that interested him, Baggins. It was for this reason that Hobbiton was singled out as one of the points for immediate visit and inquiry. The witch king had now a clearer understanding of the matter. He had known something of the country long ago in his wars with the Dúnedain, and especially of the Tirn Gorthad of Cardolan, now the Barrow Downs, whose evil whites had been sent there by himself. Seeing that his master suspected some move between the Shire and Rivendell, he saw also that Bree, the position of which he knew, would be an important point, at least for information. He put, therefore, the shadow of fear on the Dunlending and sent him on to Bree as an agent. He was the squint-eyed southerner at the inn. Um, okay, so, the answer to the squint-eyed southerner riddle. Yes, he was a servant of Sauron, but, or Saruman, but he had been suborned by the Ringwraiths and was now like a double agent against Sauron. Um, he was now working for the Ringwraiths, even though he was initially sent as a spy by Saruman. And we find not only the fact that he has kind of turned his coat there, but also that um, it is due to him. And of course, we get no sense of this at all when we see him in the Inet Bree in the Fellowship of the Ring, that he is the one from whom the Ringwraiths got their information about the Shire and why they knew to go to Hobbiton. You think about the conversation that Kamal of Dol Guldur had with Gaffer Gamgee. Um, Gaffer Gamgee, you know, the Gaffer, bless him, was not very forthcoming uh, to, uh, to the Ringwraiths. Um, I think actually the way that Peter Jackson does this in the Fellowship of the Ring film is sort of interesting. You know, when he has the, the Ringwraiths coming in and interrogating the Hobbit that they meet, by the way, um, you know, and saying, uh, you know, Shire Baggins, and, you know, and, and just showing the Hobbit completely terrified and saying, no, there's no Baggins here, go up to Hobbit and anything to just get rid of them and send them along. But that's not, of course, how Ham Gamgee talks to the Ringwraiths, right? Um, nor is it how Farmer Maggot talks to the Ringwraiths. Neither one of them is awful forthcoming. Um, both of them tell the Ringwraiths to get lost. So it actually does not seem like a trivial thing for the Ringwraiths to figure out, once they locate the Shire, where exactly would I find a Mr. Baggins uh, in this place? It's not huge, but still, they don't necessarily want to search the whole length and breadth of it, especially since their enemies are onto them, right? Um, especially since, you know, we have them, they have to fight their way past the Dunedain in order to come in, and they're hunting down the Dunedain, who in the end scatter in order to try to keep them from reporting. But it's clear from the meeting with, um, uh, with Gildor that we see in Chapter 3 of the Fellowship of the Ring that there are plenty of the enemy around, enemies of the Nazgul, that is, um, who actually could oppose them, not to mention Gorfindel. Um, so they do not want their presence known. They do not want... Uh, so they can't just go through, say, slaughtering hobbits uh, in the Shire, you know, just uh, so let's go through and kill every hobbit in the length and breadth of the Shire. Um, they probably couldn't do that, it says, uh, in Tolkien said that. Um, though we do have that horrifying um, concept of still a settlement of Stewards up in the Gladden Fields, which the Ringwraiths uh, um, 
uh, annihilated uh, during the hunt for the ring. Um, again, it varies in different versions. Some say that you know that um, that settlement was already gone. Others that the that the Nazgul destroyed it. Um, but anyway, probably they couldn't successfully do that to the Shire. But in any case, it'd be awfully inefficient. Um, so. So yeah, uh, Ed makes a really good point. Um, their power is by fear. If you're unafraid, they lose their power, and the gaffer is 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 unafraid. And not completely unafraid, I think. Um, he he he's you know his, his Frodo notices that his voice doesn't sound quite normal. But again, I mean it's pretty uh, indomitable, as Roy reminds us. They're halflings, right? They're indomitable. Um, but um, but anyway, so I think that it's it's. It's again, he he gives an answer to the question, which you know maybe some people were asking him, maybe uh, uh, maybe not, of how did they find Bag End? You know, wouldn't it have taken them a really long time actually um, to find Bag End uh, if all they had was Shire Baggins um, to go by? Um, so anyway. Uh, Yes, Charlie, I agree. There's a trend in Jackson's movies that the good guys are always weaker than they are in the books. Um, trying to think of an exception to that, Charlie. Mm, no, I got nothing. Um, yes, all of them, I think, from one end to the next are all weaker. Um, so, yes. Anyway, the other thing, of course that this passage is reminding us of is that this was the Witch King's hood, right? He, he, this was his old stomping grounds. He's not unfamiliar with his area. Um, still overlooked the hobbits, right? Nobody noticed. They were there, right? But, uh, you know, they sent some archers to the final battle against the Witch King, um, but he obviously didn't pay a lick of attention to them. But, right, but he answers another question which we didn't know that we had. In version B, it is noted that the black captain did not know whether the ring was still in the Shire that he had to find out. The Shire was too large for a violent onslaught such as he had made on the stores, as I just said. He must use as much stealth and as little terror as he could, and yet also guard the eastern borders. Therefore, that is from encroachment, right? He's got to guard the eastern borders to keep any communication from getting through what's going on in the Shire uh, to, you know, those which are further east, like in Rivendell, right? Or the Dunedain. Therefore, he sent some of the riders into the Shire with orders to disperse while, tra while traversing it, and of these, Kamal was to find Hobbiton, where Baggins lived, according to Saruman's papers. But the black captain established a camp at Andrath, where the Greenway passed in a defile between the Barrow Downs and the South Downs, and from there some others were sent to watch and patrol the eastern borders, while he himself visited the Barrow Downs. So he's going to go have tea with some of his old friends, right, the Barrow Whites. In notes on the movements of the Black Riders at the time, it is said that the Black Captain stayed there for some days, and the Barrow Whites were roused, and all things of evil spirit, hostile to elves and men, were on the watch with malice in the old forest and on the Barrow Downs. It is not a coincidence, we learn, that Frodo had such a very hard time getting from the Shire to Bree. Um, if their uh, journey seemed plagued with disaster, 
you know, that they ran afoul of Old Man Willow and then they got trapped by the Barrow Whites and, I mean, gosh, what more could happen to these people as, you know, Tom Bombadil laughs at them, right, how good they are at losing themselves. Um, but now we're, we learn this was not a, an accident, right? The Witch King himself had been there uh, stirring them up. The Barrow Whites were especially active, perhaps even on the lookout uh, for this very thing. Um, so anyway, that's all... Um, uh, that's all. Oh, Kate, of course. Thank you, Kate. Points out the obvious, uh, the obvious exception, Charlie. To your uh, all of the good people are lesser in the film than the book, and that is Legolas. Of course, Legolas is not lesser in the film than in the book. Quite the opposite. Um, uh, so yes, thank you, Kate. That is, of course, the obvious exception that I was overlooking. Um, yeah. Good. Um, Roy asks, "Are there no coincidences? No coincidences in Tolkien's world at all?" Um, no, no, I don't think there are. Um, I don't think that anything is a coincidence. <clears throat> um, it's not to say <clears throat> that the answer is always known, but um, but you know that that the, the the reasons, the causes behind everything is known. But it's um, no, I don't. I don't think there's any such thing as coincidence. There's any real such thing as chance. Um, I. All right. Well, this is a statement that would take hours to fully explain. But I've been teaching Troilus and Crusade in my Chaucer class at Mythgard, and so I have Boethius on the brain. So I'm just going to make my statement and then leave it to be explained later on some other day. Um, I think that I, the, 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 my reading of the texts suggests to me that the, sort of the philosophical underpinnings of Tolkien's world are very much in accord with Boethius's teachings in the Consolation of Philosophy. One of which, uh, one, one of which teachings is that there is no such thing as chance. There is no such thing as coincidence. Um, there is certainly fate. That does not mean there is not free will. It is one of Boethius's teachings that you can certainly have both fate and free will. And he explains how those two things work together uh, in a more satisfactory way than anyone else I have ever read addressing that question. But um, Anyway, I'm not going to go into a long Boethius explanation. Um, much as I'd love to, it's one of my favorite books uh, in the world. Uh, but um, <laughs> Roy is suggesting that Boethius on the brain sounds like a sounds like a band name. Roy, that would be the geekiest band I can I, I've ever heard of. Um, uh, that would be that would be pretty awesome. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, so. Uh, who knows? Maybe someday we'll do a we'll do a Mythgard Academy class on the Constellation of Philosophy. It was nominated before. I don't know if it'll ever win, uh, but hey, it would be fun. Anyhow, um, but that's to explain why my answer is no, no coincidences. Okay, Saruman. Let's talk about Saruman. One version of the standoff between Saruman and the Nazgul. Two days after Gandalf had departed from Morthanc, the Lord of Morgul halted before the gate of Isengard. Okay, chronology important. 
two days after Gandalf has departed from Orthanc. Okay, he's left by Eagle two days ago. Then Saruman, already filled with wrath and fear by the escape of Gandalf, perceived the peril of standing between enemies a known traitor to both. So, crap. He's now in real trouble, right? Gandalf now knows his, his treachery is revealed to Gandalf, and since Gandalf has escaped, now all of the Council of the Wise are going to know that he's a traitor. Um, and now here are the freaking Nazgul knocking on his door, right? So, okay, now he's going to have to betray them too. So everybody, you know, in the space of 48 hours, here's Saruman the whole, like, I'm going to play both sides plan completely in ruins, right? This is a really bad day for Saruman. His dread was great, for his hope of deceiving Sauron, or at the least of receiving his favor in victory, was utterly lost. Now either he himself must gain the ring or come to ruin and torment. And again, notice how we are seeing, we're getting more insight into Saruman here. We knew that he really, really wanted to find the ring in the Lord of the Rings. We now begin to see why, right? That he's already trapped. He's already screwed, right? And he, he realizes this. And, you know, you know his, his search to find the ring is not just, you know, kind of always been his plan A anyway. It's now the only thing, the only way he can possibly save himself. But he was wary and cunning still, and he had ordered Isengard against just such an evil chance. The circle of Isengard was too strong for even the Lord of Morgul and his company to assail without great force of war. Therefore, to his challenge and demands, he received only the answer of the voice of Saruman that spoke by some art as though it came from the gate itself. It is not a land that you look for, look for it said. I know what you seek, though you do not name it. I have it not, as surely its servants perceive without telling, for if I had it, then you would bow before me and call me Lord. No question where, where Saruman stands. You see why Sauron didn't send Saruman to go look for the ring? And if I knew where this thing was hid, I should not be here, but long gone before you take it. There is, only, there is one only, only whom I guess to have this knowledge, Mithrandir, enemy of Sauron. And since it is but two days since he departed from Isengard, seek him nearby. Now, this is a pretty cunning move by Saruman, right? I mean, the guy is really stuck. But what does he do? Well, if he can sick the Nazgul on Gandalf, maybe he can save the situation, right? Maybe um, uh, he can show that he's not completely, you know, he, he can make them think that he's not betrayed them, right, that he's still kind of on their side. It doesn't make any, any, any uh, mystery about the fact that he would like the ring for himself. I don't think that he thinks that Sauron is any, in any question about that, right, that Saruman would set himself up as a rival if he got the ring for himself. However, um, he uses that as an alibi, right? Obviously, I don't know where the ring is. If I did, would I be here? No. So the fact that I'm here shows I, don't, I, I, I can prove to you I don't know where it is, right? That's actually a pretty good argument. So what does he do? Send them off after the one person who might be blowing his entire cover. He could still preserve the situation. If the ring raids find and kill Gandalf fast enough, then maybe he can, they can get to Gandalf before Gandalf spreads the word about Saruman's treachery, right? Um, so that seems to be his one sort of desperate hope here, and we see the power of his voice even deceiving the Nazgul themselves. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, this is one version of the Saruman story. 
The other one, I think, is even cooler. In C, on the other hand, the Black Riders arrived at the gate of Isengard while Gandalf was still a prisoner in the tower. In this account, Saruman, in fear and despair, and perceiving the full horror of service to Mordor, resolved suddenly to yield to Gandalf and to beg for his pardon and help. So here's Sar Saruman about to turn back to the good guys, right? He's on the cusp of repenting of his treachery. Wow, and also remember, uh, when Gandalf sees Saruman again in the Two Towers said, you know, when last we spoke, you were the, you were the, the jailer of Mordor, and to there I was to be sent, right? So we can see how Gandalf's interpretation fits in here. Just as Gandalf is leaving, he sees the Nazgul showing up and makes the logical assumption that they've been summoned to take him, right? To, to take him off to Mordor, and he's like, and oh, no, I escaped in the nick of time, right? Um, so we see sort of Tolkien sort of showing how Gandalf came to that misunderstanding, um, and, but tragically, he is, Gandalf has misunderstood. Saruman doesn't realize Saruman was genuinely going to beg for his pardon and his help. Right? Saruman, the great Saruman, is just going to humble himself and repent. Temporizing at the gate, he admitted that he had Gandalf within and said he would go and try to discover what he knew. If that were unavailing, he would deliver Gandalf up to them. Then Saruman hastened to the summit of Orthanc. So here's, he's, he's getting ready to betray the Nazgul, right? He said this to put them off. He's going to go back to Gandalf and say, okay, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Um, help me. Let's get out of this together. Um, you know, I'm, I'm back on your side again. And found Gandalf gone. Away south against the setting moon, he saw a great eagle flying towards Eteros. Oh, crap. The tragedy. Saruman's, Saruman's near repentance. Now Saruman's case was worse. If Gandalf had escaped, there was still a real chance that Saruman would not get the ring and would be defeated. In his heart, Saruman recognized the great power and the strange good fortune that went with Gandalf. But now he was left alone to deal with the Nine. His mood changed, and his pride reasserted itself in anger at Gandalf's escape from impenetrable Isengard, and in a fury of jealousy, he went back to the gate and he lied, saying that he had made Gandalf confess. He did not admit that, the, that this was his own knowledge, not being aware of how much Sauron knew of his mind and heart. I will report this myself to the Lord of Barad-dûr, he said loftily, to whom I speak from afar on great matters that concern us. But all that you need know on the mission that he has given you is where the Shire lies. That, says Mithrandir, is northwest from here some 600 miles on the borders of the seaward elvish country. To his pleasure, Saruman saw that even the Witch King did not relish that. You must cross Isen by the ford, and then rounding the mountain's end, make for Tharvad upon Grey Flood, go with speed, and I will report to your master that you have done so. Isn't it lovely? the way, the, the sort of, the, the, the attitude that he adopts there. I will report to your master that you I'm checking on you for on Sauron's part, right? I'm totally above you guys in the pecking order with Sauron. You know, he asked me to make sure you guys were doing your job, so you make sure you do it, right? I mean, it's very clever, um, the way that Saruman handles that. But again, notice his frustration, and again, the tragedy, his desire to repent, and the thwarting of his desire to repent, um, and his being the things that are driving that are driving him here, right? Uh, 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 frustration and despair. Now he's left alone to deal with the nine. Um, his pride that reasserts itself, 
presumably even more strongly after his little brush with humility, his little brush with repentance here, um, and his furious jealousy of Gandalf, his anger at Gandalf's escape from impenetrable Isengard. Because um, even when he was going to go and ask for help, he, you know, he at least had that sop to his own dignity, right? Okay, I'm begging for your help, but I totally had you. You know, I mean, like, you were trying to escape, and you couldn't escape. So, you know, we both know that when it came to one-on-one, -on -one, I beat you. So when I'm asking you for help here, it's not because I'm lesser, you know. So it's, uh, uh, you know, it's still kind of an acceptable situation. But now he is doubly and trebly furious. Um, but also, his worry, Saturn might lose. I mean, he sees in this, he sees in Gandalf's escape, this is bad. This is a bad sign, right? He knows how to read the signs. There is something going on here. There is great power and strange good fortune that went with Gandalf. Not Gandalf's great power, right? But that there is great power and strange good fortune that goes with him. Um, it's like in this moment, Saruman has the sudden sinking feeling that he might be the villain in this story and might be going to get his comeuppance at the end. Um, well, again, I think that this, this, this is certainly my favorite version of the Saruman story that we get here um, because uh, um, I think that uh, I just, the, the sort of the complexity of this and the, this is the only place we get anything like this near repentance. Um, the closest we get is um, Gandalf's assurance, you know, the, the, the brief glimpse of the mind in doubt, right? Um, how close he comes to agreeing and, and, and coming down when Gandalf has beaten him, right? It's different than his repentance earlier on. Um, but when he, you know, when, uh, when Gandalf calls to him and he almost comes but doesn't come, um, yeah, yeah. And now Tom is suggesting that it's not true repentance and he's just putting his old white cloak back on. You know, I mean, it says that he was going to ask for his help. Now, do I think he'd stay permanently reformed? Um, yeah, Sharon is also uh, suggest Sharon Hoff is also saying he's not truly repentant, just caught out. Um, yes, yes, but again, I, I mean, I, I agree with you. I don't necessarily think that we can count on the fact that he was uh, in the middle of having what would have been a permanent alteration in his character here. But, but, he, um, but who knows? Who knows what would have happened? What we are told is that what he was fixing to do was something that was deeply against the grain of the path that he had been walking. To ask for pardon and help from Gandalf, his prisoner. Um, after the speeches he had just made, you know, which we remember from the Fellowship of the Ring, um, uh, that is a big deal. Um, you know, maybe you can say, oh, he was just going to try to deceive him. I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I'm sure we can say that, maybe. Um, uh, but I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. Um, or at least I don't like to think so. What we're told here is just a very simple statement of fact, not from Saruman's point of view, not in Saruman's own voice, right? Um, but when what we're 
what we are given here, what the narrator of this passage seems to offer us, is a backstage pass into Saruman's brain here. What was really going on in Saruman's mind? Um, and when we get that, we are told that he was going to beg for Gandalf's pardon and help. Um, uh, so, and I think, um, especially given Gandalf's retaining the hope that Saruman would repent, even after he's been beaten, um, uh, is, I think, some evidence that Gandalf at least believes that it's potentially possible. Um, yeah, Charlie says it's a sort of a variant on or echo of that saddest moment in all the tale when Gollum's heart almost changes uh, on the stairs of Kirith Ungol. Yeah, I mean, of course, it's not as moving as that moment. Um, but yeah, again, I think we do have... We, I, I think that we have to care, be careful in being too cynical um, because we do have that evidence. Gollum was this close. Gollum almost repented. Um, and he might have repented had the circumstances been a little bit different. We're told here that Saruman almost repented and went to beg for pardon of Gandalf. Gandalf seems to think that repentance is possible, um, that Saruman could choose to go a different way, could end up choosing to go a different way. So um, I'd like to hold out hope that uh, th that might have happened. But again, the horrible tragedy of him coming to that conclusion like moments too late. Oh, well, poor Saruman. Um, now, more on his complex relationship with Gandalf. Here's in the, uh, the bonus material. Saruman soon became jealous of Gandalf, and this rivalry turned at last to a hatred, the deeper for being concealed and the more bitter in that Saruman knew in his heart that the Grey Wanderer had the greater strength and the greater influence upon the dwellers in Middle-earth, even though he hid his power and desired neither fear nor reverence. Um, just to comment on that sentence here. Um, Gandalf calls Saruman the greatest of his order. Um, what I pause over here is when I'm trying to answer for myself the question, do I think these later writings of Tolkien on this subject, on the subject of Saruman and Gandalf. Do I think that these writings contradict, actually contradict what was said in The Lord of the Rings, in particular Gandalf's comment there about Saruman being the greatest of his order? And in the end, I think, yes, they do. Now, even when he contradicts what he wrote before, even when he decides to push it in a different direction or to push us in our reading of it in a different direction, he leaves us an out, right? He rarely just sort of flatly contradicts something and leaves it sitting there. Um, here, of course, he shows that although Saruman is not really the greatest, Gandalf is greater than he is, but Gandalf is so much more humble, right? He desires neither fear nor reverence. So you can still say retroactively, in a sense, Gandalf's statement was true. Right? He is the greatest. Saruman is the greatest, not the most powerful, not actually the best, but he is the greatest in the sense of he has the most stature and he has the most fear and reverence, right? He's, no, he's the number one guy, no question. But um, 
but I cannot believe that that's what Gandalf meant when he said it in The Lord of the Rings. Um, because to imagine this is to imagine Gandalf as somebody who is describing, who is saying that of somebody that he knows, in fact, to be lesser than himself. Um, and therefore to be saying it with some kind of irony, conscious irony, when he says it. And I don't think that that's consistent with what we see of Gandalf and of his statements, and in particular of his decision not to return to Frodo when he hears from Radagast of the, of the coming of the Nine uh, into the West, um, but instead to go down to Isengard um, uh, and obey Saruman's request if he didn't really believe that Saruman was the greatest of his order and might perhaps have some kind of, uh, have some kind of resources that Gandalf doesn't have uh, to resist the Nine, he wouldn't have gone. Um, so had Gandalf known himself to be greater than Saruman, um, I don't think that entire thing works out the way that it the way that it does. Um, but um, anyway, I, I, I think you know there there are different ways that we can look at this. But again, I'm not um, I'm not too concerned about that for now. What I'm thinking about here is simply, and this is sort of a lead-in to when we look at the Astari essay later on. Um, Gandalf has been growing. You know, we looked a little bit at that last time when we were looking at the quest of Erebor and how Gandalf has grown from the from the the little old man who showed up at Bag End, you know, in 1937. Um, he, he's grown quite a bit um, by the time we get to the Lord of the Rings. And he doesn't stop growing. Remember, Galadriel didn't stop growing. Um, she got really big <laughs> by the end there um, in, you know, Galadriel 3.0 uh, and, and to a lesser extent 4.0, but especially 3.0. She was huge, right? Um, and Gandalf continues to grow, I think, after the publication of The Lord of the Rings. Anyway, carrying on. Saruman did not revere him, but he grew to fear him, being ever uncertain how much Gandalf perceived of his inner mind, troubled more by his silences than by his words. So it was that openly he treated Gandalf with less respect than did others of the wise, and was ever ready to gainsay him or to make little of his counsels, while secretly he noted and pondered all that he said, setting a watch, so far as he was able, upon all his movements." Um, so we have, you know, Gandalf as the as the object of his envy. Um, this the way in which Saruman is now depicted as not just as a rival to Gandalf, but as an emulator of Gandalf. Right? Um, I, you know, he is so paranoid about him. He he has, in a sense, so much faith in Gandalf's power and Gandalf's wisdom that he sets a watch on all his movements, trusting, in essence, that anything that Gandalf does is probably done for a really good reason, right? Uh, and, and again, there's a kind of a touching uh, faith that Saruman seems to have in, uh, in, in Gandalf's actions and in Gandalf's wisdom. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, Paul, that's a really good point. Paul uh, Grosskopf was just saying um, in, in connection with the near repentance of Saruman there, uh, he's recalling uh, the near repentance of Captain Ahab at the end of Moby Dick. Uh, near repentance like that can be very powerful. Um, yeah, I agree. We get, you know, in some ways, 
a villain is is sort of less powerful, is less moving, I think, as a villain, um, if we don't see that sort of that humanity still lying beneath, you know, that um, that proximity to repentance. Um, so, so yeah, that, that's I think I, you know, Paul, I think it's another reason why I'm very willing to to grant Saruman that that possibility there. Um, but this is just the most adorable fanboy activity I've ever seen. Yet in truth, Saruman's spying and great secrecy had not in the beginning any evil purpose, but was no more than a folly born of pride. Small matters, unworthy, would seem to be reported, yet may yet prove of great moment ere the end. Now, truth to tell, observing Gandalf's love of the herb that he called pipeweed, for which, he said, if for nothing else, the little people should be honored, Saruman had affected to scoff at it, but in private he made trial of it and soon began to use it, and for this reason the Shire remained important to him. Anything Gandalf does must be good, right? He smokes this stuff, so smoking this stuff has got to be a good thing. So in secret, you know, I can he he's like, you know, he's a completely closeted pipe smoker, Saruman is, because he doesn't want to admit that he's a complete fanboy of Gandalf, right? Anything that Gandalf does has got to be good, right? So he's going to do whatever Gandalf does. Again, the 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 depth of the the almost sort of servility of his attitude towards Gandalf. We're not just talking about paranoia here. Um, we're talking about real admiration of Gandalf. Um, yet he dreaded lest this should be discovered and his own mockery turned against him so that he would be laughed at for imitating Gandalf and scorned for doing so by stealth. Well, since I'm doing this, since I can't let anybody find out. If they find out that I'm smoking in secret, I'm never going to hear the end of this, right? And everyone's going to be calling me a Gandalf fanboy forever and ever. This, then, was the reason for his great secrecy in all his dealings with the Shire, even from the first before any shadow of doubt had fallen upon it. And it was little guarded, free for those who wished to enter. For this reason also, Saruman ceased to go thither in person, for it came to his knowledge that he had not been all unobserved by the keen-eyed halflings, and some, seeing the figure, as it were, of an old man clad in grey or russet, stealing through the woods or passing through the dusk, had mistaken him for Gandalf. After that, Saruman went no more to the Shire, fearing that such tales might spread and come, maybe, to the ears of Gandalf. But Gandalf knew of these visits and guessed their object, and he laughed, thinking this the most harmless of Saruman's secrets. Gandalf, of course, is so wise that he even gets, he, 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 he totally parses all of this, right? He guesses that it's his secret and says, okay, I know you're a closet pipe smoker, Saruman, but I'm not going to mention it because I'm too kind-hearted uh, to laugh at you in public for this. Um, uh, and he thinks it the most harmless of Saruman's secrets. You know, really, if you think about it, this is Saruman being paranoid and being foolish about doing what is really kind of a good thing, which Gandalf seems to interpret as a good thing. You don't, you don't have to lie about sneaking off to the Shire. The Shire is nice. The people there are nice. Um, pipe smoking is good, says Gandalf, right? So, you know, uh, the thing that he seems to be most ashamed of here, Saruman, is like the thing which in Gandalf's eyes he has least to be ashamed of. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, um, yeah, Roy is asking if, you know, it, uh, is here, uh, you know, is Saruman already declining so that Gandalf might actually have increased in power relative to Saruman? 
that is certainly true when Gandalf returns from the dead. I think you know there's no there's no question here um, that that's the you know, that he is in charge uh, and knows himself to be more powerful than Saruman uh, when he returns. But um, um, yeah, Sarah asks a fascinating question. Um, uh, does this mean that Saruman really admired Radagast as well? You can tell because of how scornfully he speaks of him, right? Yeah, maybe. Maybe he's also like a closet bird tamer too. Maybe in like in a dark secret dungeon of Orthanc, he has like a bunch of little caged birds and stuff that he tries to learn to talk to. And maybe he has his own pet hedgehog or something. I don't know. Uh, but Sarah, that that is an excellent suspicion. Uh, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, okay. Um, all right, there's one more thing, and then I'll let you go for tonight. Okay, 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 two more things. Um, uh, sorry, I'll carry on here. Um, thinking this is the most harmless of Saruman's secrets, but he said nothing to others, for it was never his wish that anyone should be put to shame. Nonetheless, he was not ill-pleased when the visits of Saruman ceased, doubting him already, though he could not himself yet foresee that a time would come when Saruman's knowledge of the Shire would prove perilous, and of the greatest service to the enemy, bringing victory to within a nail's breadth of his grasp. So there's chance involved here, which Gandalf doesn't foresee. He often doesn't foresee it, but chance which seems to work in almost the opposite direction, right? That by chance, Saruman's comparatively innocently obtained uh, uh, knowledge of the Shire um, turns out to almost spell disaster. And speaking of near disasters, we get the smoke ring incident uh, from one of the White Council meetings. Both the silence and the smoke. So there's Gandalf being, you know, as Saruman is saying, no, we should not move against El Guldur. Um, Gandalf is saying nothing and smoking prodigiously. Both the silence and the smoke seemed greatly to annoy Saruman, and before the council dispersed, he said to Gandalf, when weighty matters are in debate, Mithrandir, I wonder a little that you should play with your toys of fire and smoke while others are in earnest speech. Grow up, Gandalf. But Gandalf laughed and replied, you would not wonder if you used this herb yourself. You might find that smoke blown out cleared your mind of shadows within. Anyway, it gives patience to listen to error without anger. You know, that endorsement... As a as a uh, as a tobacco ad, uh, this is the most effective one I've ever heard. Actually, I'm like, wait, really? Does it does it does it enable you to listen to error without anger? Maybe I should try that. Anyway, um, but but it is not one of my toys. It is an art of the little people away in the West, merry and worthy folk, though not of much account, perhaps, in your high policies. Saruman was little appeased by this answer, for he hated mockery, however gentle, and he said then coldly. You jest, Lord Mithrandir, as is your way. I know well enough that you have become a curious explorer of the small, weeds, wild things, and childish folk. Your time is your own to spend if you have nothing worthier to do, and your friends you, and your friends you, make, you may make as you please. But to me the days are too dark for wanderers' tales, and I have no time for the symbols of peasants. Gandalf did not laugh again, and he did not answer. But looking keenly at Saruman, he drew on his pipe and sent out a great ring of smoke with many smaller rings that followed it. Then he put up his hand as if to grasp them, and they vanished. With that, he got up and left Saruman without another word, but Saruman stood for some time silent, and his face was dark with doubt and displeasure.
Tolkien going back and taking Gandalf's smoke rings, which are to feature in the early chapters of The Hobbit, uh, and investing them with portentousness. In fact, I will admit, this passage is the very first time I ever connected those two things at all in my mind. You know, Gandalf's smoke rings and the rings of power. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a marvelous little connection here. Um, Gandalf. This is another place, I think, where we see Gandalf acting in a way which is very consistent with Gandalf as he comes to emerge as time goes on and Gandalf becomes wiser and more powerful, but less easy to see as being consistent with Gandalf as we get him in The Fellowship of the Ring. Um, if Gandalf already were thinking that Saruman was seeking to grasp at the rings of power, if he already suspected him to that extent, it's again difficult to imagine that Gandalf would willingly go into Isengard as he does in the Fellowship of the Ring. Again, that concept, the concept of Gandalf's trip to Isengard is a comparatively early feature of the story. Um, and Gandalf has, again, the, the story develops and Gandalf develops a lot after that. This concept that way back then, well before Bilbo had found the ring, um, Gandalf was already suspecting that Saruman's thoughts were turning to greed and the seizing of power for himself makes it harder to imagine that Gandalf in the Fellowship of the Ring would act the way that he does. Um, but the irony is, once we do get Gandalf developing in Tolkien's mind the way that he is, it becomes difficult for us not to imagine him being suspicious of Saruman at any point in, in uh, previous to this. Um, when you know there would have been um, that when, when there would have been uh, reason for him to be suspicious, um, Neil asks, "Did Gandalf's mockery contribute to Saruman's fall?" I don't think so. Um, I mean, I don't think that we're supposed to see this as a golem on the stairs of Kirith Ungol moment. Um, uh, you know, me. <laughs> I'm imagining if this scene had worked out some way else, right? That is like, a, if instead of this we get Gandalf, you know, ste stepping into a room and there's Saruman with his pipe, right, smoking, and Gandalf laughs at him, uh, you know, and like just when Saruman was going to ask for Gandalf's autograph, instead Gandalf laughs in his face and that sets Saruman on his path. Uh, you know, um, uh, I think that... Um, it's, 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 uh, so no, I, I don't think that we see that happening here. Um, and he is being, you know, it, it, he's showing mockery, but it is gentle, uh, as the narrator is confessing, though, of course, to Sarum, and that does not excuse it. Last passage. It was a strange chance that being angered by his insolence, Gandalf chose this way of showing to Saruman his suspicion that desire to possess them had begun to enter into his policies and his study of the lore of the rings, and of warning him that they would elude him. For it cannot be doubted that Gandalf had as yet no thought that the halflings, and still less their smoking, had any connection with the rings. 
If he had had any such thought, then certainly he would not have done then what he did. Yet later, when the halflings did indeed become involved in this greatest matter, Saruman could believe only that Gandalf had known or foreknown this, and had concealed the knowledge from him and from the council, for just such a purpose as Saruman would conceive to gain possession and to forestall him. Um, I love the wonderful games of speculation that we see going on in Saruman's mind, right? Because he, you know, his own fallen nature, you know, his own fall into evil, um, his own giving in to his desire for power leads him into foolishness, right? We see his own, you know, you think about how Gandalf calls Sauron a wise fool, right, um, after the Battle of Pelennor Field, when he's doing what he believes to be shrewd, but if he had not done that thing, he would have, uh, um, you know, had he acted less shrewdly, he would have, in fact, um, been acting more effectively. So, too, here, we see that, you know, within Saruman's mind, we get the wheels within wheels, right? He remembers that thing about the smoke rings, and when he comes to suspect that the ring is being held by a halfling, he looks back and he's like, oh, Gandalf knew he was sending a message. Okay, maybe he didn't know, but he foreknew, right? No, I mean, so we see Gandalf's stature growing and growing in Saruman's mind, right? In ways which are totally untrue, right? He's, he, he's now willing to believe almost anything of Gandalf and interprets it along his own lines, right? Assuming that Gandalf is doing things the way that he would do things and for the reasons that he would do them. Um, and that, like with Sauron at the end of The Lord of the Rings, we see is one of the great pieces of foolishness that those who fall into this kind of moral trap that Sauron and Saruman are both in, um, the, it's, 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 it's the way that they tend to act, to judge all others by their own standards, to assume that everybody else thinks what they do, and to be incapable of understanding the motivations and the thought process of others. Nancy asks, is this his subconscious foreknowledge again? Um, yes, possibly so. I mean, we can't rule that out. It was a strange chance, right? And that's always a, a kind of a portentous phrase, right? In Tolkien's writing, it was a strange chance. Um, um, for it cannot be doubted that Gandalf had as yet no thoughts that the halflings had any connection with the rings. Um, the narrator assures us that in his conscious mind, Gandalf was not at all thinking about that. But is there a way in which his... Uh, his reference to the rings and the sort of incidental, even accidental, uh, implication of a connection between pipeweed and uh, and the rings um, is, you know, Gandalf receiving some kind of subconscious uh, uh, message. Well, it does turn out to be true, which is itself kind of suggestive. Um, but uh, but again, it's it's we have this irony. That um, uh, that Gandalf is even here made the sort of unconscious instrument, and yet he almost reveals to to Saruman. Although Saruman doesn't parse this right at all, because he's operating under false conceptions, both about the amount of Gandalf's knowledge and power, and also, of course, about Gandalf's intentions. But um, he, uh, but but nevertheless, he perceives that there's something in this and that there probably was something in this. So Gandalf is again this instrument, but it's ironic that it almost, in this case, leads to disaster. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sarah says Gandalf's smoke ship in the movie was probably for uh, foreshadowing of the Grey Haven. See, exactly, Sarah. You're totally, you're all over it. Um, <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, I did have a couple other things. I'm glad I talked a little bit about the the uh, the battle at the Ford, the battles at the Fords of Eisen at the beginning. There are a couple other things I wanted to say. In particular, a couple things about Saruman that, of course, we get there as a transition here. I'll probably start with those next time. Um, I divided the three final essays into two weeks, um, sort of unevenly. Um, I, you know, on the last day on the last last week of class I have scheduled only the essay on the Palantir not because necessarily I plan to spend the whole week on it but just to make sure we have some time for spillover and plus we have one more bonus session left so I'm not going to worry about uh, pushing back some discussion of the uh, the battles of the Fords of Eisen to next time uh, as well but anyway so I'm going to let you guys go uh, I've kept you long anyhow and you've been very patient but thank you very much for joining me tonight at the at our special day and time here well, special day, anyway. And next week, I plan to be back at the normal time. So we'll have our next class in just a few days on Tuesday of next week, um, where we will uh, talk about the battles of the Fords of the Bison a little bit more, and then we'll go on to the Druidon, at, at least. Um, read the Druidon and the Astari, just in case we do get to the Astari chapter also. Um, but we'll see what we get to. Anyway, thanks very much, everybody. Good night. <laughs>